for that ministry in music. A very large portion of our lives is involved in the establishing and maintaining good relationships to others. This is, in fact, a large part of our Christian duty. If you think of the Ten Commandments, basically they're divided into two parts, and that is our relationship to God and our relationship to others. In order to maintain good, healthy relationships with one another, we need to respond to one another in an appropriate fashion. As a part of our duty to one another as Christians, we need to be sensitive to one another's condition and respond in an appropriate manner. If you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, it's been a number of weeks since we've been in our study of 1 Thessalonians. But we're picking up where we left off, and this morning looking at verses 14 and 15 of chapter 5. This duty of responding to one another in an appropriate manner is shared by the entire congregation. For notice in verse 14 it says, We urge you, brethren. It is addressed to the church at large. And so this responsibility falls on each and every one of us that have gathered here this morning that we respond to one another in an appropriate fashion. That is our duty. There are five duties that are delineated in verses 14 and 15. Three of them are specific. Two of them are general. Three of them speak of the condition of an individual and the response that we are to have. And the last two are general relationships that we are to have with everyone. So the theme this morning is a consideration of the duties involved in relating to one another in an appropriate fashion. The first duty in relating to our fellow believer is to admonish the unruly. Found in verse 14. We urge you, brethren, admonish the unruly. So first we look at the condition of the individual. They're described here as unruly. Unruly. Translated in the NIV as the word idle. Idle. Oftentimes, when we are studying the Scripture, we want to do word studies because they are very, very helpful. Obviously, these are significant words that are in our text. So we want to know exactly what does it mean when it says that a person is unruly. Well, to answer that question, usually two things happen. First, you want to see how this word is used in other places in the New Testament to see what kind of attitudes or actions are exhibited by a person who is referred to with this Greek word unruly. And you do want to look at the Greek word because the English word could be found in many different places and you'd be looking at, at different synonyms. So you always want to go back to the Greek word. Well, as you do that, you would soon find out 
that this is the only place where it's used in the New Testament. So that's not particularly helpful. There's no other place where this word is used. So then the second step is to say, well, how then is it used in society? How is it used in the secular realm? How is it used outside of the New Testament? And so we find that it's translated outside of the New Testament as idle, undisciplined, irresponsible, disorderly, lazy. Referring to people who do not listen, who do not have discipline, and who do not follow orders. At its very root is a military term. And the military term means of, it's used of a soldier who breaks rank. A soldier who breaks rank. So I would submit to you at its core is the thought of a person who does not follow orders for a multitude of reasons. Whether it be undisciplined, whether it be lazy, whether they be disorderly, whatever the reason, these are people who do not follow instruction. They don't follow teaching. They don't follow the word of God, even though they are professing to be believers. So what are you to do with people like that? The response that we are to have, according to the text, is that we are to admonish them. Admonish them. The word to admonish means to warn, instruct, bring to someone's attention, or confront. Or to confront. At its base, it means to help people see the consequence of their actions. Let them see where their attitudes and behaviors, if not checked, if not changed, if not repented of, where is it going to lead them? Where is this unruliness going to end up? What is going to be the result in their lives? For example, this is just one example, but we find in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11, it says we are to make it our ambition to lead a quiet life and attend to your own business and now these words, work with your hands just as we commanded you. See, there's a command, there's an instruction, there's a teaching. We have commanded you that you are to work with your own hands. You're to be industrious. You're to provide for yourself. That's what we have told you to do. Well, what happens if a person is unruly? What happens if they're undisciplined, if they're lazy? If they are unwilling to follow instruction? If they're not going to heed this word to go to work. What's supposed to happen? Well, according to 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 10, if anyone is not willing to work, then he's not to eat either. If anyone is not willing to work, he's not to eat either. There's to be a consequence. All right? You won't work, then you don't eat. So the admonishment is the warning. It's the instruction. It's the confrontation. It's the painting the picture of the consequence. Look, you're living this unruly, lazy, undisciplined life, and if you don't change, you're not going to eat. You're pointing out the consequence. You're pointing out what is going to happen as a result. 
And so we need to back off a minute, I think, and ask ourselves some significant questions as we work through this text. And the first question I would have is, is that the right response to have? Is that what we should say to people? If you're unwilling to eat, then, excuse me, if you're unwilling to work, then you don't eat. We're not going to give you food. Uh, We're not going to buy you groceries. You're going to starve if you're unwilling to work. Is that really what we are supposed to do? I just finished a few weeks ago, a number of weeks now, but the last beatitude I looked at, I shouldn't say that, but one of the beatitudes I looked at was that we were to be merciful uh, unto all people, uh, that we are uh, to demonstrate uh, mercy, and I pointed out that that mercy is to be demonstrated to all people, including people who are living sinful lives. It's pity. It's compassion. You should take into consideration the problems and dilemmas they have in life. So here's this person who obviously could have a lot of problems and difficulties if they're unwilling to work and the church is unwilling to help them. You can see how they would end up in some pretty difficult spots. The reason I'm pointing that out to you is because I've been encouraging you to read your Bible through in a year. So I'm back on that hobby horse. And the reason you need to read your Bible through in a year is to be able to take all these texts and intertwine them. Play them off of each other. See what the whole counsel of the Word of God has to teach. For we find in dealing with people, a lot of times there are competing values. Competing values, such as justice and mercy, confrontation, peace. And so what to do in any one given situation requires great wisdom in compilating all that the Word of God has to say. And if you only look at one passage, you are going to have a very limited and thus uninformed view of what the Bible has to say. And it would be impossible for me to show you everything that the Bible has to say about that particular subject. That's why you need have to be reading your Bible through in a year. That's why when I preach, I stick to what the particular text is saying, realizing that you've got to take the whole situation in view. But since I've started down this road of if they're unwilling to work, then they should not eat. We need to remember we're talking about people who are unwilling to work as opposed to people who can't work. Or people who are who can't find work. Okay, We're talking about people who are unwilling to work. Undisciplined. Lazy people is what we're talking about. And it's interesting how the Old Testament handles that issue. If you remember in the Old Testament, they had a uh, they had instruction concerning what was referred to as gleaning. Gleaning. Gleaning vineyards. Gleaning fields. And so what the farmer was supposed to do 
was, was leave a little bit of grain around the edges of a, of a field. If he had sown wheat or barley or, or some kind of grain, leave some around the edges of the field. Or leave some grapes on the vine so that someone who was needy could come and pick the grapes and could harvest the um, wheat. But you see, that required a certain amount of industry on the part of the individual. It wasn't that the farmer was supposed to do all this for them and drop it off at their front door. It was up to the individual to go and to glean. And of course, one of the classic examples of that in the Old Testament is in the book of Ruth. And Ruth went out to glean in Boaz's field. And once Boaz saw how industrious Ruth was, how she was there doing what was right, and she was in need, no fault of her own. She was a widow, and she had her mother-in-law living with her. Boaz, seeing her industry and work, rewarded her by providing her with sacks of grain, if you, if you remember. He had mercy, he had pity upon her. Well, you see, it takes great wisdom to know how do you come to a person's aid at the same time that you do not enable their laziness and their indiscretion. When do you help and when don't you help? All of that is mighty complex. And what the Word of God has to say here is, but one thing you can know for sure, is that people who are unruly, undisciplined, need to understand the consequences of their actions. You need to warn them. You need to instruct them. You need to teach them. You need to confront them. You need to admonish them. And the idea here is that it's, it's personal. You don't just say these things in general. You don't just say, well, this is the kind of person we ought to be. But when you see those qualities exhibited in an individual, you go to them. You talk to them. So many times we don't want to be confrontational. So many times we see needs, but it's just easier to try to address it as a whole and talk to everybody than it is to go to the individual and say, brother, you've got a problem here. And you've got to realize if you aren't willing to work, it's going to create financial hardship for you. It's going to create difficulties. You've got to see the consequence of the action. The second duty is in relating to our fellow believers is to encourage the faint-hearted. Verse 14. Encourage the faint-hearted. So the condition that's described here as faint-hearted is one of worryment, discouragement, fearfulness, sense of inadequacy, despondency, and sadness. All of that would fall into this range of what is being translated here as faint-hearted. People who are worried, people who are discouraged, people who are fearful, inadequate, despondent, sad. What do you have to do? What's the response? Verse 14, you're to encourage them. Cheer them up. Say a kind word. Show compassion. Reassure them of being loved and accepted. Think of a cheerleader that is standing on the sidelines trying to help those that are involved in the game. Egg them on. Encourage them. 
motivate them. That's what we're to, be, to do with people who are sad. So thus, if we're going to fulfill this responsibility, we need to be sensitive to people's situations, understand their conditions. We need to be informed. So I ask you, how do we do that in a practical way? How do you people on the left side of the church over here know what is needed in the lives of the people on my right side of the church? And how do you people on the right side of the church know what is happening in the life of the people on the left side of the church? You may say, well, you know, you look for telltale signs. You look for somebody... They've got tears in their eyes. Do they have tears in their eyes because they're sad? Or do they have tears in their eyes because they're joyous? And something wonderful has just happened. And they can't express enough how delighted they are. How do you know? How do you know? All of these duties are contingent upon a knowledge and awareness of our brothers and sisters condition. So how do we do that in a practical way? I would recommend to you highly, and I can't stress it highly enough, attendance at prayer meeting. There you have the opportunity to give and receive requests. I pray for five or six things on any given Sunday morning. There are much more, there are many more issues going on in the life of our church than the five or six things that I pray for publicly on any given Sunday morning. Come to prayer meeting and you begin to find out what's going on in people's lives. People open up. People share. And not only do they share in terms of giving requests, but we break up then for times of prayer. Usually one-on-one or small groups, two or three people praying together. And a lot goes on when those two or three people get together and pray. They talk about their families. They talk about their health. They talk about their struggles. They talk about their jobs. They talk about all kinds of things that are going on that just aren't shared in other venues. It's not the kind of thing that people talk about as they are watching the uh, volleyball game. From the sideline. Even Fellowship Sunday, which is a great thing. I'm sorry we're having to cancel it today. If you don't usually come to Fellowship Sunday, I encourage you to stay and get to know people. But when there are 30 people sitting in the, in the area, people don't have a tendency to burden their souls. But in the privacy of one-on-one, where you're with people that you know are going to pray for you, you know that are interested for you, you open up. And you share these things. We need to be helping others in the sense of encouraging others. And one of the greatest ways you can do that is to pray for them. But you need to be in a situation where you are making yourself vulnerable. You're opening yourself up. And you're sharing your life with other people. Quite frankly, if your only involvement in the life of our church 
is a Sunday morning worship service, you're missing out. And even if you come back Sunday night, you're missing out. Because that opportunity for personal involvement in other people's lives is limited to the greeting before service and after service. Not that that can be valuable and people stand around and talk. That's good. But it can't replace what happens in a prayer meeting setting. So I commend that to you and would encourage you to come to prayer meeting, to be involved in people's lives, that we might be able to fulfill these duties that this text is referring to. The third duty is, in relating to our fellow believer, is to help those who are weak. Help those who are weak. Verse 14 says, help the weak. Again, this word for weakness can have a very broad application. It can be moral weakness, spiritual shortcomings, physical weakness, or economic need. And the response is, we're to help them. We're to support them. Supply assistance. Defend them. Come to their aid. Seek to lessen their, their load. Cut them a break. Maybe remove some responsibilities. Pitch in. Help them get their work done. The idea is you help them. They have a need and you seek to meet that need. People are complex and situations are complex. It is easy to read these verses in a very simplistic way. But oftentimes, people are exhibiting more than one of these conditions at the same time. For example, it would not be surprising that a person who is unruly would also be depressed. Or that a person who has a great physical need would also be sad. And yet, there are some people that would have the very same physical weakness and they wouldn't be sad. They wouldn't be down. You just can't assume that when somebody's experiencing a particular situation, that there is a uniform response to it. Some people find certain things devastating. When others, it seems like it just rolls off their back. And there are other things that, for the one people, it might roll off their back, and for somebody else, it would be devastating. It's a lesson I had to learn with my girls when they were going through their early teenage years. They'd be sitting there crying over stuff. I'm thinking, man, that's not a big deal. You know, and I'd want to say to them, suck it up. You know, just get on with life. It's no big deal. But it was a big deal to them. It was a big deal to them. And so, you've got to take it seriously. Because hurt is hurt. Sadness is sadness. Tears are tears. No matter what the reason is. We need to realize people's different situations. How small life is. I remember 
going to visit my aunts when they were in uh, a retirement center. Uh, they were in full assisted living. They were both in their 90s. It was a huge issue when the soup wasn't hot. And they got together and the whole community had a meeting because the soup wasn't hot. But you see, there wasn't much else in their lives. There wasn't a whole lot else going on. They weren't traveling. They weren't going anywhere. They were getting up. And one of the few things they had looked forward to was lunch. And when their whole world was revolving around lunch and the food wasn't hot, that became a big deal. That became important. We need to be sensitive to one another. And not just know what's happening in people's lives, but what kind of toll is it taking on them? What's it doing to them? Is it ripping them apart? Are they doing just fine, thank you? You can't assume that everybody is responding in the same way. So it requires a great deal of wisdom, of discernment, of time, interaction. This is a passage that's teaching us simply to care about and for one another. Be sensitive. So that the response must be tailored to the individual. It's not a one-size-fits-all response. But you have to deal with each individual. And that's why we as a congregation need to be sensitive to one another. It's not about 300 people focusing on one person. It's 300 people interacting with each other engaged in each other's lives, and so mutually, people are being encouraged or helped or warned or admonished as we are engaged with each other. It's not any one person's responsibility to do it for everybody. It's our responsibility collectively to do this for one another. So, on Wednesday night, it's not your responsibility to come and then have people stand in line and now this person prays with you and now the next person prays with you and now the third person prays with you and now the fourth person prays with you and now the fifth person prays with you and now the sixth person prays with you and okay, all 300 now pray and now we can go home. Nor is it, well, we better get 300 people together and pray. No, you see, it gets done with one and one or one and two or two or three getting together and praying and here are two and three praying over here and here are two or three praying over here and here are two or three praying over here. But you see, it doesn't get done if you're not there. You need to be engaged in it. You need to be a part of it. I implore you, not because of any legalistic rule, 
I'm just telling you, you're not getting everything to be, to be gotten out of church life. If you cut yourself off from some of these unique opportunities. You're carrying some burdens on your own that you don't need to carry by yourself. If you're willing to come and share them with some others. Maybe you don't feel like you're close to anybody in the church. You come and pray for somebody for a month and I'll guarantee you're going to feel, feel close to them. You're going to appreciate them. You're going to value them. And you're going to find yourself talking to them outside of prayer meetings. This is about our responsibility to care for one another and to help one another. The fourth duty is general. It's general. Verse 14. Appropriate in every situation. Be patient with all men. Can't get more general than that. You see, you need to know particular situations, but one quality that's always necessary and is always appropriate is patience. Regardless of the situation, we need to exercise patience. To be patient, to wait, to delay, to give opportunity for God to work. We need to realize that people's situations, including our own, for the most part, don't change overnight. There isn't some magical pixie dust that you can spread over people's heads that all of a sudden, all their burdens and cares and worries go away. The chances are that the struggles you come with on Wednesday night are the struggles you're going to have on Thursday morning. What you have is God's grace. What you have is a movement, a direction, a small step, an improvement, a gaining, patience. Patience. Patience with the unruly. Patience with the depressed. Patience in every single situation. In dealing with one another. We need to be patient. What are we waiting for? God's work. God's grace. God's empowerment. And yes, ultimately... Christ's coming. For we know that not everything is going to be solved in this life. Patience. And so part of what we are trying to do is help other people to be patient. Help them hang in there. When they feel like throwing in the towel. You know, there are people that struggle with depression to such a degree that they're, really to end their, they're ready to end their life. Do you believe that Christians can commit suicide? Do you believe that the Christians can get to the place where they say, I don't want to live anymore? I do. I do. And one of the things that you do is you try to say, hang in there. Encourage them that they can go another day. By God's grace, this is eventually going to get better. It's going to improve. The situation is going to change somehow. And you are standing by them. Patience in every situation. You just don't write people off. You're patient. And then the last one is to be kind to everyone. Verse 15. 
See that no one repays another with evil for evil, but always seek after that which is good for one another and for all men. So be kind. Don't do people harm, but rather seek to benefit them. Never seek to do people harm, but always to benefit them. Notice it says in verse 15 that no one, not a single person, repays another evil for evil to retaliate, to get back, to get even. This assumes that you're going to experience evil. This, exper- this assumes you're going to experience hurt and pain. This assumes that you're going to be lied to. You're going to be cheated. You're going to be misunderstood. You're going to be talked to in a surly fashion. It guarantees that if you want to find fault, believe me, you're going to have opportunity. Because you're not always treated the way you're supposed to be treated. But what you do in return is not seek to treat the person in the same way. They were surly to me. I'll be surly to them. They insulted me. I'll insult them. They hit me. I'll hit them back. It is not to try to hurt people in the Scripture. Discipline. Discipline is never simply punitive. It's never just to make people pay for what they have done. Discipline in the scripture is intended to bring people to a place of repentance. It is intended to be a help. It is intended to restore them. So that refusing to feed someone who is unwilling to work is not intended simply to make them pay for not eating, for not working. So that, okay, you won't work and I'm not coming out of my hide. No. The reason is to bring them to a place of repentance. To bring them to a place where they become industrious. Bring them to a place of responsibility. Bring them to a place where now, rather than mooching off of others, they're in fact giving and helping other people. Discipline is always intended to be a source of repentance. Thus, we are seeking God's goodness or blessing on them. God will bless the repentance, and so should we. It's interesting, though, of what the Bible says about about God and how he deals with us. In the Scripture, it says... In Romans 2.14, oh, excuse me, 2.4, Or do you think lightly of the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that the kindness of God leads you to repentance? The kindness of God leads to repentance. The worldly response would be, if you're going to be kind to a person, you're going to take advantage of them. You're going to be kind to a person, they're never going to change. You're going to be kind to a person, then 
They're going to continue in this behavior forever and ever and ever. In Matthew chapter 5, verse 44, it says this, But I say unto you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them who hate you, pray for them which despitefully use you and persecute you, that you may be the children of your Father which is in heaven. For he makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and the unjust. Think about how God has dealt with us over the years. Think about how God has dealt with you. Talk about patience. Talk about long-suffering. How you have had the freedom and the blessing to come and ask God for forgiveness time and time again for the very same thing. And yet, the struggle we have to forgive someone time and time again for the very same thing. God so rarely strikes us down in a really obstinate and harsh way. So often he is just so long-suffering and patient and tolerant. Now there are times in which he brings us up short. There are times. Uh, David describes how in his unrepentant state that God's hand was heavy upon him day and night. How he had this sense of conviction. He had a sense of guilt. There needs to be a balance in these things to be sure. But all I'm saying to you is this verse is teaching us that what we don't want is vengeance. And what we don't want is paying people back. What we don't want is an expression of our anger. Think of when you disciplined your child and maybe you spanked your child and you may have said something like, this hurts me more than it hurts you. Is that true? Is that true? When you disciplined your child, did it hurt you more than it hurt them? See, it's so easy to discipline our children to make our life easier. We want to take a nap on Sunday afternoon. We have a five-year-old that just bouncing off the walls. They've been in church all morning, and they, they want to do stuff, and we want to nap. and They don't want to nap, and it's pretty understandable why. And we get angry with them, and we discipline them because we're not getting the sleep we want. Is that really for their betterment? Is that really for their maturity? Or is it for our ease? Do we ever discipline our children in our own anger? And strike them simply because we're upset? The idea here is, in dealing with others, it's not about alleviating our pain, or our hardship, or exacting in any way a pound of flesh. But it's Always, in every situation, without exception, being kind to the evildoer. Three situations that are specific. They require a great deal of wisdom to intertwine with the whole arching teaching of the Word of God. And then two that are just very, very general. That's always appropriate. And has to be. Don't lose your patience. 
and don't fail to be kind. That's the way we're to deal with one another. Don't lose your patience. And don't fail to be kind. It will go a long way. May God grant us that kind of fellowship, that kind of unity, that kind of support, that kind of help in our situations. For we hear of cancer. We hear of deaths. We hear of physical needs. We hear of emotional needs. We know of families that are in distress. We know people that are out of work. May these things not just go in one year out of the other. May we be affected by them. May we be sensitive to people that are going through them. And may they, when they come to be in our presence, find it a unique oasis in life. I am reminded often of the words of Mark Twain, who was quite cynical and said, don't tell people your troubles. Because half the people don't care. And the other half are glad of them. What a world we live in. Half the people don't care. And half the people are glad of them. They're happy that you're getting this trouble in your life. May it never be in the life of the church. May it never cease to affect us. And may we always, no matter what, feel a sense of sorrow, a sense of remorse, a sense of heartache for those that are going through hardship, no matter what the reason. Let's pray.